exciting. Uh, Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, as we continue our series of sermons. Lord willing, we'll, we'll go through this whole Gospel. It's the longest book of the New Testament, but we'll work at it. We'll take it bit by bit. If you're viewing from home or watching the live stream later on, God bless you for tuning in. It is good and right to hear from the Lord and to seek out his word and truth. We just encourage you to come join us here at Clifton Park Community Church in the morning or in the evening to hear God's word in person and to meet some of his people. We'll be reading a a long section, but you'll see how it holds together, talking about the, the earliest days of the baby Jesus. So we're going to pick up in verse 21 and read through verse 38 from Luke's gospel. And many of the things we hear in today's passage, we only hear from Luke. Verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless it, To all who believe, obey his word. Amen. It shouldn't surprise anyone when someone says parents will do anything they can for their baby. 
parents have to do just about everything for their baby. I read an interesting fact the other day that when an elephant is born, and gestation of an elephant, ladies, is 18 months, when a baby elephant is born, within a day, it's standing on its own two feet and walking. Within a day. Not so with human children. Human children need all our care round the clock. And you usually ask new parents, uh, when are you getting any sleep? We're aware of that. But that compulsion on the part of the parents is the thought here. They're willing to do whatever they can for their baby. And I've, I've seen and heard all those things that sometimes new parents get sucked into. If we play Mozart or Beethoven in the background, they're going to grow up to be a genius. You know, if we do this or that. And, and, and they're willing to do something, even if it seems awkward to the world, because they want their best for their baby. If you were born in the days of Jesus, what was best for the baby? If you were born in, into the Jewish people and that tradition and that religion, you had some of God's instructions explicitly what was best for that child. And we talk about the law of God, which is really God's revealed will for his people. And yes, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there were many particular laws, rules, practices, Indeed, we we could even call them burdens from which we are free in the new covenant. We don't have to go obey the kosher food laws, for instance. But Mary and Joseph, seeking to do all they could for their new baby, did what the law required, what God had revealed for his people to do. First and foremost, they had him circumcised. And then when, when Mary had gone through the purification for a new mom, They also presented Jesus at the temple. They named him. They offered him to the Lord. They were redeeming him back for their own. All these rites and rituals they did. Because as pastor and theologian Phil Riken says, the most important things that parents can do for their children are spiritual. Never forget that. Good parents, he says, pray for their children. They read and sing the scriptures to their children. They take them to worship in God's house. And I would add, at the right time, they tell them to repent and believe in Jesus. The best things a parent can do in loving and caring and providing for their children is those spiritual things that God directs us to do. And you know, if you're familiar with Galatians 4, I'm going to read a couple verses from, verses from Galatians 4 as part of our introduction. I think this, this is what God, our Heavenly Father, does for humanity. He does what He can for His created children. He does offer a Savior. But not all accept him. Galatians 4, in the midst of Paul making an extended argument about Christianity and being freed from the law uh, and those things. He says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, When we were children, we were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Part of the good news of the gospel of the New Testament is that God's physical children, all these human beings he's created who fell into sin, can become his spiritual children, can be adopted through their Savior. God did not leave this world and the humans he created to perish. But God so loved the world that he sent his Son. God is the father of all mankind in the physical sense. But in the true and spiritual sense, God is only father to those who are born again and adopted through Jesus Christ. But we see in today's passage in Luke's gospel, we see how that worked out in history. For the son that God sent, Jesus, was born of woman and under the law. So he had to go through those steps and those rituals. To be the redeemer, Galatians tells us he is. Born under the law meant he had to be circumcised. He he had to go through those rites and rituals. So let's take a look at what Luke chapter 2 tells us about our Savior, our consolation, our hope, a gift of God's great love. And the passage kind of breaks down by looking at the three Characters, if you will, we'll first look at Jesus and his parents, then we'll look at Simeon, and then the final shortest heading is Anna at the end. First, Jesus, born under the law as our Redeemer, to be our Redeemer. Uh, We started the story in verse 21, as Luke lays it out in his gospel. On the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised, and his name was confirmed. His name is Jesus, as the angel instructed You see, it was Jewish practice to have the males of Judaism circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, With with that surgical procedure, kids, your parents can explain it to you. With that surgical procedure, they were marked off from the world and and devoted to God. They became members of the new covenant, the the covenant, uh, the old covenant with God. That was the sign of the covenant to be circumcised, to be a Jewish man. And that had to be necessary for Jesus to be circumcised according to the law that he might be a law keeper in every respect. Having fulfilled the law and lived a righteous life, he might give his life for us. Just think if Jesus had been born to someone else and had not been circumcised and then wanted to be the savior of the world, he couldn't. Because he has, to be, he has to be a keeper of the law. All of it. Every law. 100%. It's really the faithfulness of the parents that's being highlighted as they obey the angel's instruction, as they obey the revealed word of God. They named him Jesus. Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. Similar to the Old Testament name Joshua. A beautiful name, and we know it. It's known almost all the way around the world today. Sadly, though, men use it in cursing. Those who understand the name and know Jesus, count that name as precious. Jesus, on the eighth day, is circumcised. 
And it's interesting, when Paul is boasting at prayer meeting, we looked at Philippians chapter 3 and some of Paul's boasts about being a good Jew, Pharisee of Pharisee, a keeper of the law, zealous. In his boast, he included the fact that he was circumcised smack dab on the eighth day, a law keeper. That was part of Paul's boast. It's in accordance with the law of God. Jesus kept the law from that very moment, of course. There's two more rituals, though, that are talked about with Jesus and his parents, Mary and Joseph, because in verse 22, it goes on to tell us about how they went to Jerusalem to the temple. And there are two events that happen here. Uh, There's going to be a presentation of Jesus and the redemption of the firstborn. But first, there's going to be the purification of Mary. If you understand from Leviticus, I hope you've read some of that Old Testament background. We're not going back today. But in Leviticus 12, it's very explicit. When a woman gives birth, she is ceremonially unclean. It's just part of the Jewish law. There's been a flow of blood, and she's ceremonially unclean for seven days. And then on the eighth day, the child is um, circumcised. And then Leviticus 12 goes on to say, wait 33 more days. So you get to about day 40 is completed. Then she will be ceremonially completed and clean again in the eyes of the law, teaching uh, God's uh, principles through that. So they go up to the temple, and notice it says, verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law, it's plural, there. Well, Mary just gave birth. Who else is going to get purified? In case you're wondering, it's not the baby Jesus. He doesn't need to be purified. It is likely, because the Bible does say literally there, It was Joseph who may have acted as the midwife around the manger that night that Jesus was born. The carpenter's son. He who would fashion wood had to deal with an umbilical cord. And having been around that blood and whatnot, he would likewise be ceremonially unclean. That's possibly what that's referring to. Luke doesn't give us all the details. They go to Jerusalem primarily that Mary might be purified and they bring um, uh, the required um, offering. They were poor, so instead of a pair of turtle doves, they they brought the smallest offering, the, the pigeons or the birds. The purification. These law-keeping, faithful parents provided the way for Jesus to be the law-keeping Savior even when he was eight days old, when he was a month old, even before he would begin to smile, coo, or speak. God's provision. And then there's this presentation at the temple. And we have some details from Luke because that's The main point, he wants to tell us more about Jesus. Verse 22 picks up that. Uh, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So that's the presenting. And I guess we see that clearest in the Old Testament when Hannah, who was given a son, who we know to be Samuel, brought him as the firstborn he belongs to the Lord so they brought him to the temple that he might serve the Lord every firstborn belongs to the Lord that's an Old Testament principle you read about it in Numbers 
and in Leviticus, in a variety of places, you read about it, especially among the Levites. If you're a man born to the tribe of the Levites, you had duties placed upon you, and if you were the firstborn, you had particular duties. Whereas back in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that young Samuel is brought and presented at the temple, and he stays there. In Jewish practice, there was an ability to redeem that firstborn, so he didn't stay at the temple, but he could come back to his family. And that redemption price was eventually solidified, and I believe it was five silver shekels. And you can Google it. Some people talk about those things even now. I don't know how the Jews are practicing with the current day rules and rituals, but there is a redemption price that could be paid to redeem the firstborn from that serving the Lord. They bring Jesus to the temple and they're going to present him and most likely pay that redemption price. And really, before it happens, what interrupts? What interrupts? We saw that they brought him and then they also mentioned the uh, purification. In verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Okay, somebody's coming. His name is Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, they're about to present him. What happens? The baby gets snatched. Well, no, I'm trying to make it exciting. It says in verse 28, he took him. Simeon took Jesus. Hello, ma'am. May I hold him? Um, Don't try that with me and any of my grandchildren. You ain't grabbing. The setup is clear, though. Doesn't the text tell us several times this man was a good man and, what does it say explicitly, filled with the Holy Spirit? And the tense in the language implies that it wasn't just for a moment like Samson. It was ongoing. He was a man who walked in the Spirit. And as he approached Mary, that must have been evident in some spiritual, supernatural way. Here's Jesus. The the man with reverence in his face and joy holding Jesus. How quickly we read past all of that. The temple was a busy place, too. If you you wouldn't know, the courts coming into the temple, uh, Penn Station busy. Grand Central Station busy, people walking different directions, different things going on, activities, families all coming at different times because they're not always on the exact same schedule. But a man walks up to Mary and takes Jesus. He's being presented at the temple and here comes Simeon. So let's talk about Simeon a little bit. This is important. I call him Simeon, one who sings of the Savior and salvation. And by the way, He's not necessarily an old man. Uh, we, we sometimes let the talk about Anna cover him. We're not told anywhere how old he is. So don't think of him just as an old guy. Simeon. I think first what the scriptures show us here is that Simeon provides a spirit-filled welcome to Jesus, the Son of God, in his first visit to the temple. 
Do you remember anybody else who was spirit-filled that had an encounter with baby Jesus? We've been going through Luke slowly. You might have forgotten. John the Baptist, when he was yet in utero, even perhaps before he was viable, he was a person. And, And when he was in the presence of Jesus, because John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, what did he do? He leaps and praises. I, I don't know what, the, what he was doing to praise the Lord, but it was evident. This child is reacting in praise to the presence of Jesus who was in utero. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the presence of Jesus. And so Simeon gives a spirit-filled welcome and worship to baby Jesus. How fitting. We know how John's gospel speaks in general about the Jews. He came to his own and his own received him not. Most Jews did not welcome Jesus, the Messiah, one of the most greatest griefs of human history, is it not? They missed the boat on Jesus, by and large. But God always has his remnant. Do you remember his rebuke to Elijah? Elijah, you're not the last one, dude. I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God had a remnant in Jerusalem waiting for Jesus. And when the Lord God in human flesh, the baby Jesus, was brought near the temple, the Holy Spirit filled Simeon to praise the Lord, to take and honor that child, to sing him this song. He wasn't an angel, he didn't have a choir of angels. Jesus had gotten that welcome, but here is a spirit-filled welcome by Simeon. We know so little of this man. We don't see him anywhere else in the scripture, but we're told he was spirit-filled. He was righteous and devout. Righteous meaning uh, in terms of the law with every other human being. He was in a right relationship with them before God. And devout, that means he was careful about his religious activities. What a godly man. And what a coincidence He was led by the Holy Spirit and just happened in that busy place to bump into Mary and Joseph. Just happened that way. No. The providence of God, the leading of God's Holy Spirit. We must believe that God rules and reigns and has providential control over the lives of human beings. And if the Spirit of God is leading someone, we're not surprised that they bump into each other in the temple courts. Jesus had no natal star over him at the temple and no neon name badge. But the Spirit of God in Simeon is led to Jesus. He lifts him up, praises him as Savior. And we notice, too, the Spirit-filled welcome in verse 34. Simeon blesses the parents. Did Did you see that earlier? Verse 34, it fits here in the outline. And Simeon blessed them. I think uh, parents, especially newborn parents, uh, really like to hear that they're doing something right. And they like the encouragement. Oh, you're, you're doing a great job. This was so much bigger than that. He blesses them. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gives them a blessing as if to say, well done. Good and faithful parents. You're doing for this child 
what God's word instructs you, what the angel said. We don't know how much Simeon knew, but he knew enough, and the Spirit prompts him to bless them. Bless you, Joseph. Bless you, Mary. Boy, they had had it rough for months. How come Mary's pregnant? What do you mean, virgin birth? All the trouble, all the pressure. Yet in their faithfulness, they're brought to that moment, and God has a blessing for them. That's the way our Father works, our Father in heaven. He loves to see his children keeping faith with his word, obeying even though all the world doesn't always understand. He will say, bless you. Part of what Simeon sings is about Jesus as a savior, but notice he specifies he is a savior for all the people. He's the Messiah. He's coming to the Jewish people. Yes, but there's something for all the people in Jesus. The song or the saying, it looks like a song. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What does he mean? You've you've promised me personally that I'll see the Messiah before I die. And my life is complete now. Nothing left on my bucket list compared to this. But also, God has fulfilled his word about the coming Messiah, the prophecies, a child to be born. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He could look at baby Jesus and say that. Jesus isn't just the Savior. He is the means of our salvation. And it's prepared in the presence of all the peoples. And it's not just in the presence of all the peoples, it's for anyone who believes, repents and believes. This child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Those who are far off and those who are near. Those who are wandering in darkness, the Gentiles, that means all non-Jews. That's just about everybody that's not Jewish. There's light here, there's hope, there's information, there's a summons. You can be right with God. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, God wanted his people, Israel, from the get-go, to be a light to the nations. Why? Not to be better than the nations, but to call the nations to repent and believe, to draw near and be right with God through this means of Judaism. Old Testament believers were to be a light to the nations. And they failed, largely. They failed keeping the covenant. The only way God could have his people and have a covenant is if he sent someone to keep the covenant and then to pay the price for our covenant breaking. Sorry we're on a covenant discourse or sidebar here. But the Jews failed. They couldn't keep the covenant. Jesus comes. He keeps the law perfectly. So he's a suitable redeemer. And for our covenant breaking. Ever told a lie? Ever failed to give God praise and thanks? All your covenant breaking is covered by the shed blood of Christ. Jesus here is a savior and he's a light to the Gentiles that they would see that in him they can get in on this amazing grace. And he is for the glory of Israel. He's the fulfillment of all those covenant promises and the bringer of a new and better covenant. Jesus, savior for all the earth. 
connecting this term light and Gentiles and salvation is, is a very clear part of messianic teaching. Here's just one example. You can write this in the margin if you'd like. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Isaiah 49 contains one of Isaiah's four servant songs, those songs about what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to be a servant. Isaiah 49, just verse 6, he says, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. The Lord's speaking of his Messiah. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. From the beginning, God has a burden to the people out there. The people that don't go to church, the people that don't have a a Bible, the people that don't care. They're living in open pagan indifference and idolatry and rebellion. God wants them to hear and see, to repent and believe. So he says, I'm going to send you as a Messiah to tribes of Jacob and Israel, to those that are waiting and believing. But you're also going to be a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God wants someone from every tribe and tongue in heaven, not just Jewish people, not just Western Christians. He wants Christians from Papua New Guinea. He wants Arab Christians. He wants Asian Christians. He wants South American Christians. He wants Native American Christians. He wants someone from every tribe and tongue. Simeon, you have profound theology. He knew his scriptures. And as he looks at baby Jesus, he sees the way it's all going to work out. What joy as he sings about the Savior. No wonder he could say, my life is full and complete. I'm at peace, Lord. I can go anytime. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. There's a third thing we want to say here about Simeon. Because Simeon has a further word. After these celebratory moments, after he blesses the father and mother, he turns and seems to speak really specifically to Mary. And he says several things. Not just one, but three or four things. Beginning in verse 34. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is here speaking of Christ's mission to save, his mission to go to the cross. His mission, which will say very exclusively, hear what Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Some Baptist preacher didn't invent that. Jesus spoke clearly, and he says to all the peoples of the earth, whether they're religious or not, he says, no one gets to heaven in any way other than through me. No one escapes the wrath of God but through me. I'm the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
You've heard it said in our culture, and it, it's, it's a really widely believed that all roads lead to heaven, all religions will help you along the way. No, they will not. No other system of thought, no other religion will lead you to a right relationship with God apart from Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. That's what the Bible claims. And, and Simeon has some awareness of this. And in the spirit, he says that this Jesus will be appointed for the fall and rising of many. What does that mean? Some are going to stumble. It's going to be too much for them. They're going to stumble and they're going to fall. They're not going to believe that. I can't go there. I can't get past that. And many even plotted to kill Jesus. Who does he think he is? But notice it doesn't just say stumble or fall. It also says the rising of many in Israel. This verb should be familiar to you because later on in the Gospels and in the New Testament, it's the verb describing resurrection. Not just a bodily resurrection like Lazarus coming out of the tomb, but the talk of our ultimate resurrection to heaven itself. Same word for rising, for lifting up. Jesus will come and he will affect every man. Some will fall, some will rise. Some will fall and then rise. Hang on to that. We'll come back to that. But he's going to divide all humanity. And it says explicitly, he is a sign, he's a savior, he's God's chosen one, but a sign that is opposed. A sign that will be contradicted and opposed. As bright a light as he is, as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that he is, people may not believe. They will oppose him. He will be spoken against. He will be misunderstood. He will be threatened and opposed. And the evil one as well. Jesus will be the target for every fiery dart of, G, of, of the devil. The devil brings it to him, not just once, not just twice, but three times. The devil pulls out all the stops to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry and fails. But he's lurking and he prompts others and even prompts Judas and he's at work behind the scenes. What can I do to stop this Jesus? The things that happened to Jesus were an unexpected, um, unplanned for oppositions. The Bible saw him coming. And even from the beginning, didn't the Lord speak to Adam and Eve says, uh, uh, yeah, he, uh, the serpent will bruise the Messiah's heel, but the Messiah will crush the serpent's head. End of serpent. Savior. Snake crusher Jesus. But Simeon foretells the conflict. He foretells this via dolorosa, this way of the cross, this way of suffering. It's going to come. The process is necessary. It will expose the sinful hearts of men, whether Jews or Gentiles, the pompous Pharisee or the pagan. Be exposed. And when exposed, when man is humbled, he may repent and believe and be raised up. But in the process, Mary, says Simeon, a sword will pierce your own soul also. That isn't a syringe or pinprick. That isn't even just a little pen knife or dagger. That's not even the standard sword that is talked about when Peter's playing with his makira. The word here 
is the two-edged Roman broadsword, the big one. Mary, it's going to be so utterly, enormously painful for you. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Simeon started weeping as he looked at this teenage mother, what she would go through. Heartache, Mary. The cross is the climax of all these things. It's the way God chose to work. And before we move on, that's the only way we can be right with him is through this suffering Savior who died. (coughs) You see, as Phil Riken put it, neither Simeon nor anyone else is saved simply by the birth of Jesus. Jesus still had to live a perfect life. He had to die an atoning death. He had to rise to eternal glory. There is no salvation without the cross and the empty tomb. The story doesn't end with Christmas. It must go to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And some event, we don't have a name for it, but I think we'll call it the, the, the coming day when the clouds will be rolled back and Jesus will appear to every eye on earth in his second coming. What are we going to name that day? The last day. The great day. Oh, what joy. The gospel requires the cross as well as the birth. I hope you believe that. Now at the end of our passage here, I said it was going to be the shortest of our headings here. There's another person that's mentioned. Anna. Anna. Just at the end in this scene at the temple. This wonderful account that we've seen. And and Luke connects it here in verse 36. There And there was a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Okay, verses 36 and 37. It makes me wonder, why is Anna here? What is she going to add to the story? We see the spirit-filled one who talks about Jesus and salvation and we see Anna here, and, and it's almost more verbiage about who she is rather than what she does at the very end. It's, it's an interesting character, and it's an interesting part of the passage. So I worked on that, and I think this. I think Anna here is shown to us, given to us here to show us our part. The part of faith in response to this coming consolation she's a real model of faith and she is a faithful witness what do we mean we see first her faith was waiting then we'll see her faith in action and then her faith rewarded first her faith in waiting she was old and widowed it was a very hard life for her And yet she walked before the Lord. She's blessed by the Lord here. She's that person who never missed a service. She was always there. And I think that brought her joy. And she wasn't simply there. She had this calling. For some reason, she's called a prophetess. It seems that Simeon has more prophecy than Anna here. 
but she's a prophetess. There are only seven women in the Old Testament named as prophetesses. And there are a few in the New Testament. God did that. That's fine. He did that. And here's Anna. But I see her as an example of how faith holds on. Faith endures. Faith perseveres. Why? Because there's so much effort here to explain how long she's been at this. She was married. Doesn't seem to be any story of any children. But after seven years of marriage, her husband dies. And she's a widow. And the text is ambiguous here. For another 84 years, which would make her 91. Or until she was age 84. Either way, back in the day, she was about as old as you get. People didn't live that long back then. She did. And what's being honored here is her faithfulness. You see, faith sees purpose and opportunities where our eyes do not. She's a widow. What could she do for God? What is left for her in life? She's got no husband. How eyes of flesh often curtail what God might do. Oh, I've never married. Oh, I've never advanced. Oh, I've never done that. I've never done this. Is that an obstacle too big for God? Where's your faith? God uses people of every stripe and walk of life who've hit every kind of roadblock. God uses a blind man, now healed, to preach to the Sanhedrin. God uses a paralytic to show the power of Jesus. God uses Anna, this elderly widow in the temple courts, as an example of faith. And we see her faith in action. It says that she was actively fasting and praying night and day. She did not depart from the temple. That could mean she found an accommodation to live on the property, maybe helped in some way, or she lived nearby and was just there all the time. It could be the idiom that she didn't depart. That was where she was every day of the week. But she was worshiping. And with deep conviction, with fasting and with prayer. It's a response. My faith is in God and I believe that. And I'm going to worship. I think that's a description of what Christians are meant to be and do. Not that we have to be at church every day of the week. But that we are daily worshiping the Lord. Daily serving him. You can file this away for later. But do you know how... Christians are described in the very last book, the very last verse of the book of Luke. Jesus had ascended into heaven, and the very last verse of the book says this And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The last sentence, two verses. Christians, their response to God's work of salvation, the hope that we have is to worship and to live and to pray daily. Faith in action. And I think Anna here is also a model of how faith is rewarded. Faith is rewarded and and she takes that reward and keeps witnessing. What are we told here after the description of her character in verse 38? And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She has her faith rewarded. She's blessed by God. It appears to be that she saw what Simeon did with the baby Jesus. She connects the dots. 
um, because she is coming up at that very hour. She seems to be on the scene. And she not only has that reward and blessing of seeing that, but she begins to give thanks for that and to speak of the Lord to all who were waiting. Faith is rewarded when you serve the Lord, whether it's 84 years or not so many yet. God will see and reward that faith as he deems fit. Faith has its own rewards. Amen? It does. Anna receives that. In closing, let me just give you these three exhortations before we go. First, we want to just say it explicitly. God blesses faithfulness and obedience to his word. We see that in Mary and Joseph. We see that in Simeon and in Anna. Simeon said he'd he'd be able to see that, so he walked in step with the Spirit. What if he told the Spirit, no, I'm not getting out of bed today? If he resisted the Holy Spirit or quenched the Holy Spirit, that's what some Christians do when prompted. We know that because Paul exhorts against it. Simeon was faithful. He was obedient. Mary and Joseph were faithful. They were obedient, and God blesses that. Be encouraged, even when the world seems dark. And many are not with the program of God. God has his people and those who are faithful are blessed. Anna is a beautiful model of that, is she not? What will give you a full and complete life? What will bring you peace with life and to be at rest with God and man? Is it not adherence to the will of God as revealed in his word? We could go our own way. I don't think that will lead us to much peace, contentment, and rest. But walk in the old paths. Walk in God's ways. Second exhortation is to know this. Our Redeemer, Jesus, will affect and divide human beings. It has been a reality from the beginning. God, I I suppose we could say God is controversial. Jesus is controversial. But the right thing is to repent and believe him, to take him at his word, to see how his power attests to his profession. He said he could forgive sins and guys laughed at him. So he told a man with a broken body, be healed, stand up and walk. And he did. Jesus can handle the skeptics. Jesus can answer the challenges to who he is. Jesus rose from the dead. Really? Yes, his tomb is empty. And he appeared to witnesses. He changed the world. He changed those disciples. Jesus will affect and divide human beings. So don't be surprised when family members might push you away because of your faithfulness to Christ. When you want to tell others about Jesus and they pull back. Don't be surprised. That's the way it works. But do remember this. Hear me. Jesus can cause the falling of some... They will stumble at him, but Jesus also is the means by which they might rise. How many big skeptics, big opponents who railed at Jesus are later converted by Jesus? One example, Saul of Tarsus, hint, hint. God is pleased to do that. Not only to see men stumble, but to take some from their stumbling by his grace and lift them up. And deploy them. Who remembers the tough guy of the White House during the Watergate season? The military haircut uh, guys. Chuck Colson. The tough guy. 
gets converted. He's crying like a baby in his car, confessing his sins and crying out to Jesus and has a marvelous end of his days in serving Christ. If you don't know his story, read up on Chuck Colson. His book title, guess what? Born Again. Some people thought it was political convenience. God will divide and affect human beings, but Jesus also has the power to redeem and claim. Don't forget that. Finally, there's joy in a life of faith and service for God. There is joy. I've sensed that from getting up this morning and counting it a privilege to preach and interact with God's people, to be here with you. There is a joy in doing this. Because God is here and he brings that as we commit our ways to him. Remember Anna in this case. She could have been in the woe is me camp. I'm a widow. I'm old now. But no, she was walking with the Lord and she found one of the greatest blessings to see the baby Jesus. Whatever God calls you to do, said one person, at whatever stage of life, Serve him in the appropriate way, living for his glory. That call may come to you soon. Or you may already know it, but you might have been resisting it. Whatever God calls you to do, work at it mightily. I'm so thankful for Simeon and Anna, aren't you? And you know what? I think the world is filled with more Simeons and Annas than we know. Nevertheless, will you be a Simeon? Will you be an Anna? Faithful to the Savior, the consolation of Israel. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done for humanity what we could not do for ourselves in sending your own Son to be our Savior, making him a law-keeping, righteous Savior who would lay down his perfect life and shed his sinless blood for our sin. Lord, may we indeed profit from that transaction and be saved by faith in Christ. Father, give us joy in believing. Help us to obey when it's difficult in this broken world. May we be blessed for walking with you. And may we be a blessing to others that our joy in the Lord might be shared and spread. Please answer for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.